Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Oak Park Christian Church today. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. It is Palm Sunday, and we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Might be an adventure. Forgot my glasses in my office. There we go. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding, Lord, with a deeper appreciation of all that Jesus went through for us. Father, I ask for the work of your spirit to be active and present with us, those who are gathered here in this place, in these moments, those who are watching online now or even at a later date, determined by your choosing. Lord, I pray for your spirit to work and for you to speak. And as you speak, I pray for our the, the, the ears of our hearts, the, the ears of our mind to truly listen and to, to allow your spirit to work, to teach, to instruct, to convict of sin, to, to compel us to deeper faith. Lord, to, to channel us more to righteousness and living for you. As always, Lord, God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to work, to speak, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus has lifted up, lifted up as our as Savior, as our Lord, your Son, O oh Father God. And it's in his name that we do pray. The privilege of praying to you as Father through faith in your Son. Amen. Would you please be seated? Welcome, everyone. It's so good to have you with us today. Please remember, bulletins are available by the QR code. You can check those out. If you're a guest with us, very honored that you're here. If you could please fill out a connection card, you could do the paper copy, or you could do the online version. We would greatly appreciate that. I also want to say a very, a very special welcome to those joining with us online today. Thanks for being a part of the Oak Park family. We're so glad that you are a part of things today. Remember, you can participate in today's service, in real time, that is, by texting in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. And if you are a first-time texter inner, we would love to get your name so that we know how to pray for you by name and also be able to follow up with you to help you in your spiritual growth. Uh, before we get into the message, one last little order of business. Last week, uh, I said we need to come up with a name for Tay and the worship team. So we got a couple of suggestions last week. Don't think we've settled on one yet, but the leader of the pack so far is this. I really wish Kevin was here because we need a rim shot for it. Are you ready? Tay men. Congratulations, Billy. You're in the lead so far. All right. Special thanks to not only Tay for leading today, but special thanks to Dave and Lorna Kirk for blessing us with Little River once again, this uh, world's most adorable donkey, uh, as we have had done for a couple of decades or more here at Oak Park, uh, mimicking the processional, drawing our hearts, minds, and eyes to perhaps just a, a small glimpse of what that scene may have been 
so many years ago. Jesus entering Jerusalem. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, or more commonly called Easter Sunday in our society. What is the significance? Why is this such a big deal? This is such a big deal because this is when it becomes go time for Jesus. Palm Sunday is the name given by Christians to to the Sunday that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the final time prior to the crucifixion. This begins Holy Week, so to speak. That's what it's called. Jesus' entrance into the city is known as the triumphal entry because he is welcomed as the Messiah. And as you saw from the verse that I read, when the crowds welcomed Jesus in, the things they were chanting, what they were singing, was the full awareness that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Messiah was to be the king of Israel. The difference is it's not a political king that they were expecting. The king of hearts, (laughs) the king of lives, the Lord of all, far exceeds the rule of any earthly king. But Jesus was anticipated. He was was accepted by so many as the long-awaited Savior. Jerusalem was hopping. It was buzzing at this time. The population of the city was about 100,000 people, but it would be swelled to perhaps almost twice that because it was the holiest of holy seasons. Passover was coming, the highest and holiest day on the Jewish calendar. Passover is when the Jewish people would celebrate the, the, the miracle of the deliverance of their people from slavery in Egypt centuries before. If you are familiar with the story, it's found in the book of Exodus. The nation of Israel is enslaved by the Egyptians, and they had been enslaved for 400 years, 10 generations approximately. And finally, God decided it was time to deliver them, to set them free. He raised up. Moses, to lead the people. But Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, would not let them go without a fight, and so it became a battle of the ages, so to speak. Moses and his God, Yahweh, versus Pharaoh and the gods of the Egyptians. The battle escalated with a a display of miracles and things like that, and finally, as the powers of the Egyptian gods diminished and were overwhelmed by the power of Yahweh, one final sign would be given. The angel of death would be sent by Yahweh over the land of Egypt, and every firstborn male child, human and animal, would die. Except for those, except for those who were dwelling in a home that had the sacrificial blood of a spotless lamb wiped on the door frames and the header of the home. The angel of death would pass over the land of Egypt and every home so covered or marked by that blood would be spared, they would be saved. The angel of death would pass over those homes. The blood of the lamb would save and give life to those inside. 
It was this miracle that finally broke Pharaoh's back, so to speak, and he relented and released the Jewish people. From there would begin their escape from Egypt and then their entrance eventually into the, into the promised land. And that's a whole different story. But every year the Jewish people would commemorate this, this miracle of deliverance, of salvation. And it was their highest and holiest time of celebration. Passover was coming. People were everywhere in Jerusalem. As Jesus makes his entrance the crowd just begins to wave palm branches. That was a ceremonial honor given to a king returning from victory over an enemy. You see, palm branches are the symbol of Jewish nationalism. When they shouted, Hosanna, like we saying today, Hosanna, it's an Aramaic expression. And it's a, it's a, it's a prayer. It's a save us, I pray, or help us, I pray. That's what Hosanna means. So every time you, you say or sing the word Hosanna, you're saying, save us, O God. Help us, O God. That was the cry of the people as Jesus entered Jerusalem. As I said, it begins Passion Week or Holy Week. It's called the Passion because that's taken from the Greek word for suffering, which is the word Pasco. For those of you who know my history, you knew I grew up in a town in Washington State called Pasco. <laughs> a lot of fun in Bible college when all the annoying sophomores in Bible college begin to learn Greek, and they learn the word Pasco means I suffer. And then there was a whole bunch of us from Pasco, and they're like, oh, there's the place of suffering, Pasco. I know, it's not, not a great joke, but it's true. <laughs> Just for the record, and to any of my, uh, my old Washingtonian peeps who may or may not be watching, I really hope my friend Ronnie is watching today. Pasco does mean I suffer in Greek. The city of Pasco where I grew up is not named after that, although there was plenty of suffering on the main streets of Pasco as a kid. Pasco stands for Pacific Shipping Company. <laughs> it was the abbreviations. Not as exciting at all. But Pasco is the word for suffering, and it is suffering that becomes the descriptive term for all that Jesus went through for us. That's what the New Testament writers settled upon through the power of the Holy Spirit to summarize what Jesus went through for us, his suffering. It wasn't just the crucifixion. It wasn't just his death. It was the entire package. Jesus suffered for us. It was the entirety of what it meant for the Son of God to sacrifice himself. The pain that he went through, physical torture, emotional duress, mocking, betrayal by a close follower, the spiritual pain of, of, of facing that moment of separation from his father, even momentarily, if it may have been, when Jesus took the sin of the world in his body on the cross. The pain that Jesus went through, along with the actual pain of physical death, of his lungs not being able to take in air, of the pain of every nerve in his body being on fire because of the, the whippings and the beatings and, and the shredding of his flesh. 
It's picturesque. It's awful. It's, it's horrible. But that's what he went through as he identified with us. Jesus, God himself, identified with what it means to suffer as a human being. And he did so for us. The gods of other belief systems, the gods of other mythologies who on occasion would suffer, would suffer because of their own fickleness, because of the punishment of greater gods. But it was always a self, uh, it was always a, a suffering for self. It was never a vicarious suffering for others. It makes Jesus different. Suffering becomes the descriptive term for what Jesus went through. We see this in the book of Acts. As Luke just summarizes it like this, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. His suffering was not, was not fatal in the sense of not fatal forever. Even during his ministry, Jesus would warn his disciples, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And it was his suffering that most closely identifies Jesus with humanity. So the New Testament writers sum everything up that Jesus went through as suffering. This is the week of suffering. It's Holy Week. It is the week of the passion, the suffering of Jesus. You see, that's where everything culminates. Jesus' ministry was incredible. Three and a half years of Jesus traveling the countryside, preaching, teaching, and healing in village after village, city after city. Thank God we have the records of the teachings of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. They are life-giving in how they change so much in, in how we understand the world and ourselves and others and the work of God. But it's the suffering of Jesus that is the most important. Each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about Jesus' ministry, they record his teachings, they record the events of his life, they, they record so, much, so many valuable things for us, but every single one of them really cuts to the chase and gets to the point of the final week of Jesus' life. You see, it was the most important out of the whole three and a half years. In the book of Matthew, there's 28 chapters, and, and Matthew didn't come up with the chapters. Those were put in about 500 years later. But if you take just all of the text, there's a significant portion of the text that is relegated to the last week of the life of Jesus. In Matthew, it's eight out of the 28 chapters. Mark is six out of the 16. Luke is five out of the 25. And the Gospel of John the last of the Gospels to be written, almost half the book is simply focused on the last week of Jesus' life. It's because that's where everything that happens that is eternally significant happens. You see, the emphasis is because we are not saved through Jesus' birth, although it's important we're not saved by the life, the sinless life he lived. That's important. We're not even saved by the teachings of Jesus. We are saved by faith in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot of Christians today that want to get us back to the red letters. You know, if you have a Bible that has like red letters for the words of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, 
Excellent. Greatest ethical teaching in all of human history. The teachings of Jesus are of supreme importance for those of us who follow him as Lord. We have to submit our lives to those red letters. But there's such an emphasis among some Christians today on the red letters of, of trying to get people to live, uh, live life according to the teachings of Jesus, but they skip over, they miss, they downplay the sacrifice of Jesus for our sin. It's almost like they think that just as the, the Jewish people had the Mosaic law and they, they tried to live up to the laws of God, if they just lived up to those teachings better, God would be happier. Many Christians today say, if we, just, if we just follow the red letters and do what Jesus told us to do, you know, do unto others, you know, judge not, you know, someone hits you on one cheek, turn to them the other. All of these wonderful teachings which do need to be followed, but it's almost like they're saying if we just follow the red letters, then we will be saved, we will be forgiven, we will be made new. We follow the red letters because Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, he is Lord of all. No questions asked, no doubt about it. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is the only one to do that who is still alive. And if he could conquer and defeat humanity's greatest enemy, the greatest suffering any human being will go through, which is death. If he can defeat our greatest enemy, he is the greatest victor. And if he is the greatest victor, he is worthy of our utmost allegiance. And that's it. The suffering of Jesus. So Passion Week is about what Jesus went through for us. Palm Sunday, though, is also so important because it's this hinge point of one of the things that proves that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, the fulfillment of prophecy. Biblical prophecy is an absolutely fascinating subject, controversial subject as well. But there's some fascinating stuff because we know there were Hebrew texts, and we know approximately when they were written. And they were written hundreds of years before Jesus even lived. And the number of prophecies fulfilled by Jesus is absolutely astounding. And what's really crazy is, a, I'm skipping ahead just a little bit to give you a little snippet. There are things fulfilled in the life, the ministry, the teaching, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus that prove the prophecy is fulfilled and what's unique about that is the New Testament writers put stuff in that Jesus fulfilled that the, that the rabbis never even expected to be about the Messiah. So Jesus fulfilled all those things that the rabbis and the great Jewish scholars of history, they, he fulfilled all those things they thought the Messiah was going to do, and then some. Stuff they never even saw in Scripture until Jesus came. A couple of examples. The Hebrew prophet Zechariah wrote and, and lived and ministered about 520 years before Jesus was even born. It is this prophet Zechariah who prophesied that the Messiah, one of the marks, one of the signs, one of the revelations of, of the identity of the Messiah would be he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This was not the common entrance for a victorious ruler. 
usually military generals or kings who were going into a conquered land would ride in on a white stallion. They would ride in on a majestic beast. And the, the beat would be, or it'd be ornate and ordained, and there would be throngs, there would be the military, there'd be all these things. It would be pomp and circumstance. It would be an impressive display. It would strike fear. It would strike oohs and ahs. Nobody is going to ooh and ah when you're riding on a donkey. A donkey was the sign of humility. And 500 years before Jesus was even born as God in the flesh, God the Father in his, in his preordained plan said, your conquering king, your new king is going to come in on a donkey. And I'm sure the people who heard Zechariah preach and then wrote, read what Zechariah wrote thinking, man, things must, uh, must be changing in the future for a donkey to be impressive. Donkey might mean something different in a few generations. We don't know. But no, it's a sign of humility. This is such a key point because it proves that God's plans and ways of doing things are often very different than the way us humans plan or do things. God still works that way. As I mentioned, there's all these prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, that, what, we, what we know as the Old Testament, there are at least 60 major messianic prophecies and more than 300 ancillary, secondary, or tertiary Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus. All those prophecies were written down in the Hebrew Scriptures at the very earliest, more than 400 years before Jesus was born. A large section of them were written between 700 B.C. and 1,000 B.C. A thousand years before Jesus, as the Son of God in the flesh, set foot on this earth, his creation, these prophecies were written. And we know they were written then because we have the documentation, we have the historicity of when the documents appeared. One striking example Jesus' form of crucifix or execution, crucifixion, is described in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. It was a song written by King David. David lived about a thousand BC. He wrote about the Messiah, the, 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 the Lord being pierced. The thing about crucifixion is it wasn't even invented for another four hundred years. And it was invented by an entirely different people, the Persians. Just one example out of all of these hundreds. So let's bring it down. What does this mean for us? What does Palm Sunday mean for us? It means a cute donkey. It means super cute kids walking through the auditorium, doesn't it? It means some of our special songs. And that's true. It means all those things. But Palm Sunday means even so much more on a deeper level. You see, Palm Sunday is just one example of God working out his plan of salvation. And the level of detail paid to that plan that God worked over the centuries is absolutely incredible. 
God's plan was to save us from our sin. It is a plan that God conceived even before creation. The very first book, the first words of the Bible are, in the beginning God created. Well, see, but there's an in the beginning before God created. There's a before the beginning. Before the beginning, God already existed. Father, Son, and Spirit, Trinity, Triunity, the Godhead. And as God is beginning to formulate in his mind this process of creation, he's saying, we're going to, we're going to create, but what we create as the, the pinnacle of our creation, humanity, is going to have free will, a choice to respond to love, a choice to enjoy and stay in relationship with us, or a chance to align with other forces. So God created and as before even before he created, the plan was conceived for sin to be forgiven, covered, for eternal life to be recovered because the beings were created to be eternal. But rebellion brings sin and brings death. The plan was conceived before creation. We know this because of Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. That means to be forgiven, to be made pure, to be sinless. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family, bringing us back into relationship by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I challenge you, memorize that verse in this version. I'm not a super huge fan of the New Living Translation. It's a solid translation. There's others I like better. But this verse, that is the cream of the crop of the entire NLT, the New Living Translation. Memorize it in this version. It says it beautifully, perfectly, and powerfully. And if you grasp this, your relationship with God will be forever different and stronger. Before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. How impatient are you with working out a plan you may put together? Personally, very impatient. God's plan took eons, millennia, thousands upon thousands of years. You see, the plan was conceived before creation, but then it was crafted through human history. And if you are a historian at all, if you like to go back and look at, at, the, at, the, the, at the history of the rise and fall of nations and people and all of that, it is very easy to see a lack of God in human history. Human history is one horrific tale after another. Ugliness, awfulness, evil, inhumanity, on the wider scale. But if you look in certain places and if you look in certain, at certain events and if you look at things through a certain lens, you will see this little thread beginning to be woven into human history. 
In fact, theologians for, for centuries have called it the scarlet thread of redemption. A single line weaved, woven into human history. Scarlet meaning red, the, the blood of Jesus. You begin to see how God begins to work and to reveal himself and to call his people and to, to set up an outpost, uh, a beachhead in the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms of the enemy, and how God's word and God's will begin to penetrate and infiltrate and influence this world. As I said, it was centuries upon centuries of God patiently, persistently working. Nations would rise and fall all at the hand of God at his choosing. Peoples would come and go. Every event would be orchestrated to, to certain crucial points in human history. That would be God directing things. Once again, the Apostle Paul, this time in the book of Galatians, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the set time had fully come. I like to picture what the scene in heaven may have been like just prior to the birth of Jesus. This is all just speculation, of course, a little bit of a divine imagination. Could you imagine the angels and the, just the, 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 the armies and the, 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 the vast numbers of all these created beings in the heavenly realms? And they're active, they're workers of God, they're messengers, they're busy, and evidently, you know, heaven's got a lot going on. But in my mind, there had to be just this, this understanding of the angels that were waiting around for the plan to finally be enacted. Centuries upon centuries, you're sitting there, is it time yet? Nope. Is it time yet? Nope. Is it time yet? Nope. How long is this going to take? The Father's already been doing these people for like 2,000 years. Man, what's going on? And then finally, it's like, it's happening. Could you imagine just what, what that must have been like in heaven? It's happening. It's go time. Everybody get ready. Places. It's more chaotic than any kind of church musical production ever. Finally, it was happening. The set time. And the audience of heaven, all of heaven was tuned in to this moment when the Son of God becomes the Son of Man. God himself takes on flesh. He is born. He grows up. He lives. He teaches. He performs miracles. He is arrested. He is tried. He is tortured. He is executed, he dies, he is buried, he rises. All of human history was set to that point. Even if as a historian you look back now, there is one singular event upon which everything hinges and in all of human history turns, it is the resurrection of Christ. It turns because what Jesus brought into the world, at the time it was virtually overlooked completely, but as historians can go back now and look, they say that humanity 
took a decidedly different trajectory in human development, evolution, if you would so even choose that word. There is one event that that profoundly impacted, influenced, and changed the trajectory of human history. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, academia can't admit it. They can't say everything goes back to the resurrection. But they will say the followers who believed that Jesus rose from the dead, they changed everything. And there's actually a growing number of scholars who do not believe personally that Jesus rose from the dead for their own sins. And this, I'm not sure how this all works out, but there's a growing number of, of secular, non-believing, non-Christian uh, academics who say, yeah, Jesus probably did rise from the dead. But see, there's a disconnect between believing he rose from the dead and believing that you're forgiven because of it. Saving faith is when it's personally accepted. There's some really interesting developments happening in that academic world. The plan was crafted through human history. That plan culminated in Jesus paying for our sins on the cross and rising from the dead. It is the deciding point in human history, not just because of our calendar, B.C. and A.D., or C.E. and B.C.E., Common Era and Before Common Era, I love how they try to eliminate, because B.C. stands before Christ, A.D. stands for Anno Domini, year of our Lord. And the, and the secular academics say, oh, no, we can't have a reference to Jesus. Let's just call it common era and before common era. Okay, well, what makes it the common era? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Ha-ha. <laughs> Joke's on you. You, see, you can't escape. You can't get away from him. He's everywhere. The plan will be completed on the day of Christ Jesus, which will be the end of this present world. The plan is not completely fulfilled yet because God is still working. God is still moving. God is still doing stuff. And we are a part of the plan. We are integral to it. That's what it really comes down to for us. We learn in things like Palm Sunday that God's work and God's timing are perfect. I mean, after all, a small of a detail as riding in on a donkey to, to, to completely you know, bring subterfuge, to subvert all of the earthly, worldly paradigms. It's beautiful, powerful, it's perfect. And if God's work and timing are perfect, he is trustworthy in our lives. Because sometimes we may be in that season where we're just not sure. We're just not feeling it. Things don't seem to be working out the way we want. But God's at work. We know that because if he took tens of thousands or at least thousands of years to work his plan detail by detail, step by step, we can be assured that he is working out his plan in our lives. You see, he knows us. As God pays attention to human history, the rise and fall of nations, kings and queens and leaders and everybody else coming and going, God knows the very number of the hairs on our head. Some of us are in this phase where we're just trying to make it easier for God and he doesn't have as much work to count. <laughs> <clears throat> 
God likes us best because we're a lot less work. But um, I'm just kidding on that. But he knows the very... If God pays that close of attention to detail, God's got the relationship issues that we're dealing with. God's got the sin, struggles, and temptations that we're dealing with. God's got the, that internal emotional turmoil we may be going through because of, of whatever it is that we're dealing with. God's got it. God knows. God's aware. He knows us. God chooses us. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God chooses us. Personally, I don't believe he overrides our free will. I think we have a, a small part to play in responding to God's love. But irregardless, at the end of the day, if it's all him or it's even just a small portion of us, we are chosen. And there is nothing in life that feels better than being chosen, right? Kids on the play, back in the days when, when it was like jungle in the play, you know, schoolyard, back when there was actually games you played where people won and lost. Now everybody, nobody can do that because that hurts feelings nowadays. But those of us who've been through the fire of getting chosen for sides and getting chosen last, it's not really being chosen, is it? That's a default. But God chooses us in Jesus. He chooses us first. And there is power. There is beauty. There is no other alternative. You see the, the, different various, the various alternatives religiously and spiritually and all that kind of stuff. They're all self-generated. They're, they're all self-focused. Envision your future. Envision your life. Self-actualized. Self this, self that. There's only so much that can be generated from inside. You, you see, we're, we're looking for that external acceptance, validation, approval. And if the God of the universe chooses us, who are we? To dispute that, he chooses us. And he is faithful to us. If God took thousands of years to work out his plan, he is working out his will in our lives as well. There will be ups and downs. There will be seasons of difficulty. There will be hurt, heartache, pain. But there will also be victory and growth, and joy. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Philippians, I am sure of this, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Every single one of us is a work in progress. We are a project. We are the handiwork of God himself. And the, 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 attention he, the attention to detail he paid in creation, the patience of his working over the millennia, that's what he's doing within us now through Jesus. We may struggle, we may stumble, we may fall, we may fail, but God never does. So if we struggle, 
turn it over to Jesus. If we stumble, repent, get up, go back to Jesus. If we fail, seek forgiveness, return to Jesus. If we falter, rely on Jesus. For when we are weak, then he is strong. It's a Palm Sunday. One day of history, one meaning of a life with God. God's at work. I like to have Tay and Tay Men come back on the stage. <laughs> Just kidding. Probably not going to use that one again. Maybe not. We'll see. But if Tay can come back on the stage and the whole team, you get ready for a communion. You like that one, Tay? All right. Suggestions are still open. All right. But as we prepare for a time of communion, would you please stand as we pray, as we praise, as we meditate, as we seek? Oh, Tay and the Little River Band. Some possibilities. All right. But as we prepare for communion, use this time, use this song to pray, to meditate. If you are a person still contemplating giving your life to Christ, to following his lordship, this is the time to, to make that decision in your heart and then to follow it up with a declaration of your voice, yes, Jesus is Lord. I accept him as my savior and as my Lord. If you're making that decision for the first time, I hope that you will talk to me or a very trusted Christian friend after the service. For those of us who are already believers, this is an act of worship where we recommit, we recenter ourselves on Jesus and what he did for us, dying on the cross for our sin and rising from the grave to give us the gift of eternal life. For those of us who are on journey with Jesus, this is where we look to Jesus for forgiveness and strength. And for those of us who follow Jesus, this is where we rejoice that, yeah, we're forgiven. The death and the resurrection of Jesus means we are loved, we are forgiven, and that we are made new. It's a great promise.